0: Welcome to the Possibility Action Network podcast. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton, AKA Possibility Man. We are committed to bringing you guests who strive to better people's lives and serve as a force for good in the world. Our guest today is Dr. Neil Barnard. He is one of the world's premier integrative medicine physicians. He is renowned for investigating the effects of proper nutrition on numerous health conditions, including type 2 diabetes, body weight, type protection, and elevated cholesterol. He was a pioneer in discovering that type 2 diabetes is reversible in many patients. Dr. Barnard has authored more than 100 scientific publications and 20 books for medical journals and lay readers. He's the founding president of the Physicians Committee for Responsible Medicine, and is an advocate for a plant-based diet. Dr. Bernard, welcome to the show today.
1: Well, thank you, it's great to be with you today. Thanks for including me.
0: Well, I have a lot of questions to ask, but first this program note to our listeners and our viewers, follow, like, and share this podcast wherever you find it. Your support matters, our sponsor information is below the description of the show. Dr. Renard, I tell you, I've been studying you now for a long time. I had hoped and prayed that I would have this opportunity, and here you are. <laughs> so I'm excited. Well,
1: it's very kind of you. I'm delighted to be speaking with you today.
0: You know, you're the first person I've ever talked to from Fargo, North Dakota. Um, what was it like growing up in North Dakota generally, and, and Fargo in particular?
1: Well, you know, that's it's cattle country. Um, And so all the land is used either for raising the animals or raising the feed for the animals. Um, But I have to say, culturally, I think our country is getting to the point where everyone's tuning into the more or less the same TV channels and and listening to the same kinds of music. And so although it's you might say it's quite different from Washington, D.C., where I live today, um, uh, it may well be that that uh, everybody's kind of getting absorbed into some of the same cultural things which from a health standpoint is not necessarily so good what i mean is my first job was at mcdonald's uh-huh. um and so that may be true had i grown up in new orleans or chicago or la or wherever so um anyway we we, we certainly have our work cut out for us to try to help people to get healthier
0: that's for sure. What made you look in the direction of medicine, you know, as a, as a younger person back in, in, in North Dakota?
1: Well, uh, my father grew up in the cattle business, and I have to say he didn't enjoy it. He didn't like it. His, his father was a cattle rancher and his grandfather and his brothers and everybody, uh, but he decided to leave it. And so he left the cattle business and he went to medical school. Oh. And my father spent his life treating diabetes in North Dakota, and so pretty much everybody who had diabetes in the eastern part of the state at some point would go see my father. Uh, the good news he was he was a good good physician, but the bad news is that diabetes then and today was treated in such a way that it was mostly aimed at just slowing down the damage, and not really trying to turn the disease around in a big way. Um, And so when I started medical school, he didn't encourage me to get involved in diabetes at all. Mm -hmm. Um, And we kind of stumbled into it uh, through the back door, discovering that if you change your focus to what's actually causing this in the first place, Mm -hmm. you find some things that you didn't expect. And uh, that's what's really propelled us into the the direction of looking at nutrition, because it's When I started medical school, we we thought nutrition was just sort of a small force. You know, it might help you lose a few pounds or whatever. Uh, We did not realize that the answers to the the disease process really lay in what people put on their plate.
0: Right. and That message comes through loud and clear in the work that you do. Uh, But we live in the 21st century. We've sent people to the moon and and back. Um, So how are we doing in terms of our food supply? How would you evaluate You know, what comes into grocery stores and into American homes today, into the homes of people around the world?
1: Well, it's an interesting uh, analogy that you've raised because I sometimes wonder if we wouldn't eat better if we were on the moon. Uh, (laughs) uh, My own family has probably contributed a fair amount to the problem that we have uh, to to this day and, and for me growing up you know a, a dinner wasn't dinner if it didn't have a big hunk of roast beef at the, the center of it or you know if it wasn't roast beef it was pork chop um, and vegetables were an afterthought that came out of a can and we didn't really respect them very much um, our grandparents might have known what beans were but we forgot that a while ago wow. Um, and things for the younger generation now is kind of the same pattern but it's coming out of fast food uh, or it's frozen pizza that kind of thing so th- this doesn't mean though that there aren't places that have done very, very well um, and and are doing better now. And frankly, if you look at the traditions of many lands, uh, what we see is that there are fundamentally really healthy traditions. I'm talking about traditional grains, Mm -hmm. traditional vegetables and fruits, traditional pulses or legumes or I might just say beans uh, that have been, been consumed for generations. And if we remember those, and figure out to put them to work. It is astounding. Number one, how frankly delicious and just appealing our culinary experience can be, but also the power that these foods have for health.
0: Right. You know, um, we live in the United States. So, how would you rate our government, the federal government in particular, in how it's doing and helping us? You know, clean up our diets from on a scale from let's say one to ten. How is the government doing?
1: Well, I think we're not doing well. Mm-hmm. If our diets serve our health measures, Mm -hmm. our health measures are not very good. The number one cause of death in the United States is heart disease. Number two is cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, And those problems are not entirely diet, but they are to a large degree driven by diet and aggravated by diet. And we can clean that up. Um, and if we look at the nutrition of children, we, ha- we frankly our statistics are not what they should be for a country that has as much collective wealth as we have. Um, and surprisingly enough, we've seen some countries that have done really quite well when they're when they've been relatively impoverished, um, uh, which is not the way that things should work out. By that I mean countries that could not afford pork um, were had better health than they did once they could afford pig farms. Uh, if you look at rural China. Um, their health is is diminishing in many ways um, as their diet is westernizing. In mm-hmm. India, the the diets in many ways were better a couple of generations ago than they are now. That more dairy products and more meat and so forth is coming in. We're seeing this in a number of African countries as well. Mm-hmm. Um, but in all of these in all of these areas, there are traditional foods that when we remember them, mm-hmm. uh, we can put them to work to mm-hmm. reduce heart disease risk, reduce cancer risk. Uh, reduce the risk of diabetes, uh, even turn it around, as you mentioned in the introduction.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. And, you know, there seems to be tension between two camps in terms of personal responsibility. One camp says that people have the authority to choose what they eat. And another camp says that people don't have the ability, especially here in the United States, to make better choices. Are both of those true? Or would you say, how, would you, how do you view that?
1: Well, I certainly do think that people should be able to make any choice that they wish to mm-hmm. um, for their for themselves and for their families. But they do need to have two things. They need to have the foods be available to them. And they also have to have some information about what we know about these foods. Yeah. Um, when I was a child growing up and my father was treating diabetes, uh, we had the idea that diabetes was just something that happened from your genes mm-hmm. and you would get, get it. Well, then people realized that diet was a big contributor but people made the mistaken notion an understandable mistaken notion that diabetes came from eating carbohydrate or came from sh- eating sugar. Mm-hmm. And it's it's quite understandable that people would think that. Um, and that idea sort of persists today, not only among the lay public, but even among many doctors.
0: Right.
1: Um, and the reason they think that is because if they eat, if people eat sugar or they eat foods high in carbohydrates, sometimes their blood sugars will rise. Or if a person has diabetes, those foods will make it rise further. Mm -hmm. But what we discovered, and uh, other teams, particularly the endocrine department at Yale University has been doing work on this since the 90s, found that this starts with something you wouldn't expect. And that's within your muscle cells and within your liver cells, the cells that are supposed to be taking the sugar out of your blood, Mm
0: -hmm.
1: something has happened. The cell has filled up with microscopic fat particles. And you can see them on scanning. If if magnetic resonance spectroscopy, for example, you can see these fat particles building up inside your cells. Mm -hmm. They come from food. They come from your McDonald's burger or a cheese pizza or whatever it is. And as the fat builds up inside the cells, sugar can't get out of the blood anymore. It can't get into the cells. So the problem never was the sweet apple that you ate Mm -hmm. or the potato or the rice. The problem was the fatty stuff that clogged up the cell so it wow. couldn't take that sugar and, and and use it. So in our research funded by NIH starting in 2003, uh, we've been working to get the fat out of those cells, which is easy to do by getting it out of your diet. Uh-huh. And that's when we see di- diabetes improve dramatically and sometimes even go away.
0: Wow, that's amazing. Now, I know that you are involved with efficacy, especially the Physicians Committee, and I saw something associated with you. I'm going to quote it. It says, "Meat is the new tobacco." Would you tell us what you meant? What you mean by that?
1: A generation ago, uh, there was a huge lobby on Capitol Hill uh, for raising tobacco, and at that time, people were pretty well convinced that tobacco caused lung cancer, many other forms of the disease, and also aggravated the risk of cardiovascular disease. But confrontation of the tobacco lobby was pretty muted because they were big political contributors. They were uh, sports sponsors and they were advertisers all over the media. Um, you could buy tobacco products in my hospital, the George Washington University Hospital. My. and I myself bought them. Uh, when I was a resident, I would go in there and I would pick up a pack of merit menthols and light them up while my head of surgery was smoking Marlboro's and we'd walk down the hall together to the doctor's lounge. Now We, we, we weren't stupid. We knew that it caused cancer, but we also knew that it's time to get cancer. And we figured, well, I'm under stress. I'll quit later on. My point, my point being that right around that time, this was the mid eighties, we realized, wait a minute, mm-hmm. we've got to get serious about this. If we as health professionals are not modeling good health, if we as a hospital are, are marketing the very things that cause disease, what kind of statement is that now? I'm happy to tell you that we all, we all quit smoking and we threw the, t- the, the cigarettes out of the hospital. And the government has gotten pretty good about it. And so virtually every public institution and every public transportation forum is now smoke-free. Mm-hmm. But where are we now? That very same hospital, if you go into the ground floor, we'll serve bacon, mm-hmm. sausage, processed meats that are in the same carcinogenic category as tobacco. Wow, Tobacco gives you cancer here. Bacon gives you cancer in your colon and in your rectum, as well as increasing the risk of breast cancer and so forth. Uh, We haven't collectively realized that we need to stand up to that industry. And more important than that, we need to stand up to our own bad habits that have allowed this to persist. I was at a medical meeting not too long ago where the doctors were uh, filling up their breakfast trays with bacon and sausage. And they would kind of laugh about it. Well, this isn't really a health food meal. At some point, it's not funny anymore. And when it becomes not so funny, is when somebody you work with dies of colorectal cancer Mm -hmm. or a family member is diagnosed with this condition. Or when we look, frankly, at the disparities uh, that we have here in Washington, D.C. and you see in every urban area between different race groups where foods are inappropriately marketed and take many victims and you see a difference in rates of stroke, heart attack and other other signs that have nothing to do with genetics and have all to do with food. So my point being, it's incumbent among the medical community and on our uh, public institutions and on our government to say, we're no longer gonna pay for those foods to go into our schools. We're gonna take them out of the SNAP program. We're gonna serve foods that we are proud of Mm -hmm. that allow the next generation to not be encumbered by unhealthy tastes. If we do that, we can be healthier.
0: Yeah, okay. I wanna touch upon, you've already uh, introduced them, but some of the problems in, uh, uh, our, our healthcare industry, some of the chronic conditions. First, let me start by just saying, see if these numbers are right. According to the CDC, the Center for Disease Control, six in 10 Americans have at least one chronic disease. Four in 10 have at least two chronic disease diseases. Do those numbers sound about right to you?
1: Sure, um, because if you look at what are the... Um, the uh conditions that increase the risk for diabetes or cardiovascular disease, overweight is, is, is one of them, and the majority of American adults um, are encumbered with that, unfortunately, mm. and they will not solve the problem uh, lifelong. They could, but they've been given perhaps not the very best information, which goes back to what you mentioned earlier, that people need food choices they also need the same information that you and I may have Lovely. so that they can put uh, so that they could put that information to work as they make those choices.
0: Mm-hmm. So what are some chronic conditions that are really taking you know, causing deaths among a lot of people? Can you just give us a few of them? Sure. Um,
1: mm-hmm. If you could do do an angiogram, I hope you hope we wouldn't do this, but if you were to do an angiogram on the graduating class of any high school in America, you would see these fine, young, healthy 17-year-olds, 18-year-olds have the beginnings of atherosclerosis. It's not not, going to kill them uh, until starting in their 40s, one or two will die, in their 50s, more will die, in their 60s, 70s, and 80s, most of the rest will die. Um, What atherosclerosis means is that particles of cholesterol are irritating the artery wall, causing it to narrow. So the arteries to the heart can't give as much blood to the heart muscle anymore. Mm. That heart muscle is going to die in spots. That's a heart attack. And that process doesn't begin when you're 60. It begins when you're a child. Mm. Um, So that's a chronic disease, cardiovascular disease that they carry with them.
0: Wow, wow. Um, so, what about
1: but, but let me say, but let me say yeah. that it's not all gloom and doom. Okay, um, Dr. Dean Ornish back in 1990 uh, went to San Francisco area hospitals where people were having angiograms. They had narrowed arteries, and what he did is he said, "Would you like to be in a in a research study?" And he said, "How about if we adopt a vegetarian diet?" Which he did. Not because he liked folk music or tie-dyed clothes or whatever, but, but because he wanted to see what would happen if he got the cholesterol and animal fat out of people's diets. Mm. What if we also stop smoking, uh, get a half-hour walk-in every day, manage stress? He showed that the arteries start to open up again.
0: Wow. Those
1: narrowed arteries that are pinching off the blood flow will reopen and allow the blood to get back into the heart. And this happens irrespective of age. Mm. So let's say you haven't lived a very healthy life and you're now 65, 75, 85, and you say, I'm going to make some big changes. That process can be reversed. So this is the knowledge that when a a family has that knowledge, they can make choices. They go to the store and they say, I'm going to skip the meat counter. Mm. Let me go to the produce counter. Let me go to the bean aisle. Let me go to the dairy aisle and pick almond milk instead of cow's milk. You make these choices and health is, uh, Mm. is within reach.
0: So are conditions like type
1: 2 diabetes genetic? To a a degree, they are genetic, but the the genetic part is more a tendency uh, or a possibility that if you eat unhealthy foods, you may get diabetes. In the same way as lung cancer can be genetic in part. Um, There are some people who have a tendency toward lung cancer, but if they never smoke, they never get the disease.
0: Um,
1: There are some people who are genetically protected to a degree, Uh, no matter what they eat, they're not gonna get diabetes. No matter how much they smoke, they don't get lung cancer. Mm -hmm. Um, But the deciding factor for the vast majority of cancers and cardiovascular disease and diabetes, the deciding factor is what you eat. You can have two identical twins. If one adopts a vegan (laughs) diet, is exercising, stays trim and healthy, that person goes a long way toward Mm -hmm. ensuring that they will never get diabetes. If they've got the diabetes, if they make the same changes, they will go a long way toward um, allowing themselves to reverse it.
0: Okay. A couple of other conditions. What about nephrology or or kidney diseases? Are they inherited or induced by our habits or something else?
1: Uh, Almost entirely based on our habits. Um, Mm -hmm. And the the two big drivers for kidney disease, of course, are hypertension and also diabetes. Your kidneys are filter units. They have tiny little filter units in the millions and millions in each kidney, and they don't do very well Mm. if the blood pressure is just too high or if they're not getting adequate uh, circulation uh, or if if you have to deal with the chronically elevated blood sugar.
0: Mm. So what about thyroid condition, a thyroid condition? Is that inherited or is that by lifestyle choices as well?
1: Well, there are two big dietary contributors, and these appear to be huge. Worldwide, the biggest one is a really simple one. It's just a lack of iodine. Mm. Um, And so iodine, if you lived in coastal Japan, Mm -hmm. you would never have this discussion because the seaweed that's your salad before your dinner is loaded with iodine. But if you live further inland, you may not be getting the iodine that Mother Mother Nature wanted you to have. Mm -hmm. It's easy to restore to the diet. Mm -hmm. The second reason, though, is a little more complicated. And that's that there are antibodies made in your body to attack that, that end up attacking your thyroid gland. Your oh. thyroid is here at the base of your neck, and it makes thyroid hormone to give you energy. And your immune system consists of white blood cells that make little protein torpedoes that we call antibodies mm-hmm. that can attack the thyroid, thyroid gland and interfere with its function. And so that raises the question of why are antibodies being made that attack the thyroid gland? What we think is happening is that dietary antigens, dairy dairy protein, for example, gets into the body because we swallowed ice cream uh, or some other dairy. And the body mistook that dairy protein as it it, it took it to be a foreign protein, mm. like a chunk of a virus or a bit of bacteria and made an antibody to that, that antibody, that torpedo went off course and hit your thyroid gland. And it either stopped it from being able to make thyroid hormone or depending on which antibody it was, it can also stop the thyroid from being able to turn off. So you make too much thyroid hormone. Mm -hmm. So both hypothyroidism, which is Hashimoto's thyroiditis, or, to, or hyperthyroidism, which is Graves' disease. Here in the United States, the biggest reason is antibodies. And to, to a degree, we believe those are environmental. Stay okay. tuned, we need more work on, on both, but uh, the scenario I just described lays open the possibility that diet changes could help prevent this problem.
0: Okay. You've already established that there's some foods that are not good for us. Now, would it be fair to say that there are things such as that I could label bad food or fake food, would that be a fair statement? Sure, I think you're right. Okay, so what are some of them? You've already given, given us some, can you tell me more about bad foods or fake foods or packaged foods, or whatever you want to call them?
1: Yeah, I have to say, um, the bad foods are the ones that my, my family raised for many generations. Um, I'm laughing here, but it's, it, uh, I really shouldn't because the, it, it's an unfortunate thing to see what, what happens uh, over time. But meat products in general, while we grew up with them and we get accommodated to them and think of them as healthy, um, really aren't really suited very well to human biology. Um, they have cholesterol, they have animal fat in them. Those drive cardiovascular disease. They also drive colon cancer. They don't have any fiber, any roughage, they don't have any complex carbohydrate, despite the fact that that's the main fuel the body wants. They don't have any vitamin C at all, which is an antioxidant that protects us. Uh, We get hooked on these foods. And so uh, meat of all kinds, I'm going to say is bad food. Number one, dairy products right behind it. We all grew up with the idea that cow's milk is something we should have three times a day, but cow's milk by nature was there to feed a calf. Um, And it's not there for anybody, not even the calf, after the age of weaning. Mm -hmm. Here's the problem. When, let's say, an adult man decides, I'm going to have a glass of milk because it gives me the calcium I need, milk-drinking men have much more risk of prostate cancer compared to men who avoid it. Um, And there are other cancers that are associated with it. So uh, bottom line, meat and dairy, uh, eggs, animal products in general, are really in the bad food department, and the good food department is four things. Fruits, vegetables, whole grains, and the bean group or the legume group.
0: Yeah, yeah, you know, you, speaking of meats, you shared a story, I would love for you to share it here. Before you went to medical school, you said that you were, I guess, maybe shadowing uh, someone who did an autopsy, and you saw the, can you share that story here, please?
1: I was working at Fairview Hospital in Minneapolis, this was the year before I went to medical school and I was the, well, I was the autopsy assistant, uh, which was really a nice name for morgue attendant, which meant that when somebody died in the hospital, um, my job was to, uh, forgive me for how this sounds, I mean, I have to pull them out of the cooler and put them on a the table and the pathologist would come in to do the autopsy to understand how they died. And one day there was a person who had died in the hospital of a massive heart attack probably from eating hospital food but that's another, that's another story anyway um the pathologist knew that i was going to be in medical school the following year and so they they would use this as an opportunity to to teach me which i really appreciated and um in this particular case the pathologist took a scalpel and and pulled back the skin and then cut through the ribs on each side of the chest so that he could remove this big wedge of ribs and put it on the table. And that exposed the heart. And so he sliced open one of the coronary arteries and and I still remember his lecture. He said, this artery is called coronary because it crowns the heart and it will carry oxygen and you know blood and oxygen into the heart muscle. And you could see this this artery, you know, there on the surface of the heart. And then he said, uh, feel it. you know I had gloves on, so I, I felt it. And instead of it feeling like a, a rubbery artery, it felt like that, like almost like a pipe stem, like a, like you could feel the calcification of it. And he said, Daniel, that's your bacon, that's your eggs that does that." Wow. And we then looked at the arteries to the kidneys and the arteries to the legs, and they had this same process. And this is atherosclerotic mm-hmm. ar- arterial disease. So anyway, the end of the exam. This is like I'm all wide-eyed, learning about this disease process. Um, he then took the ribs and he, or, well, he left the room and, um, wrote up his findings. He was gone. And I had to take the ribs and put them back in the chest and put all the organs back and sew up the skin and clean up everything. And when I was finished, it was sort of mid afternoon and I hadn't had lunch. So I went up to the cafeteria and it turned out that they were serving ribs for lunch. Mm. And I looked at it and it just looked like the ribs on the body. Mm. And and it smelled like this dead body. And I suddenly realized this is a dead body.
0: Mm.
1: And I I didn't become a vegetarian on the spot, but I couldn't get that smell out of my mind. Yeah. And I started to realize that you're eating, you know, when when you're sitting down to a plate of meat, it's it was a, a slaughtered animal, but it's basically the same biologically as a dead body. Wow. So after a while, as time went on, <laughs> I started medical school and I started then connecting the dots a little bit and I realized this is not really a health supporting food.
0: That's a that's a powerful story uh, that got my attention when I, when I heard yeah. you share it the first time. Okay, so let's say that someone says, you know, okay, plant-based sounds good, but I don't know what to do, but they're gonna go shopping with you. What are a few things that you would ask them to put into their grocery baskets? Or uh, yeah. if you say that some people know what to do, but just don't do it, I mean, I don't know.
1: Uh, I think most people need a little bit of help, okay. um, and the, we've done this in two different contexts. One was in our research studies, where, for example, people with diabetes come in, and they're randomly assigned to a control diet where they don't make changes, or to say a vegan diet where they're going to make big changes. They're they're eager to begin. I mean, they they know that this is going to be powerful, but they're not too sure what to do. The other context is in the Barnard Medical Center, which is our clinic here, and people come in with diabetes or high blood pressure or they want to lose eighty five pounds or whatever. And they say, I'm ready to, to do it, but help me. Mm-hmm. Um, here is how we do it. Um, we ask everybody to, to sit down with, along with their reluctant spouse usually. And we'll say, okay, what we're aiming for here is a diet that doesn't have animal products in it. We're going to keep oils really low, but we want to make sure that we really like what we're eating. Because if we really like it, if it's tasty, we're going to stick with it and it's going to re- revolutionize our health. So uh, our dietitian will sit down with, with a couple or whoever it is, and they'll say, what do you have for breakfast now? And what would you eat? What could you eat that's plant-based that you would actually enjoy? Mm-hmm. So the participant or patient might say, um, you know, oatmeal is okay, but I but I usually have it with some heavy cream and whatever. All right, can you leave the cream off? Yeah, I could, but but I got a flavor. It. Maybe, some, maybe some blueberries or some sliced banana or some strawberries or some cinnamon. Okay, sound good? Fine. We write that down. Uh, I like pancakes, but I put butter all over my pancakes. Um, okay, but if we if we don't use animal products to make it and we don't put butter on top, that counts. And if you want, you can put the blueberries on top of that, too. That'll be fine. Um, or the patient might say, well, if I had to have a plant-based breakfast, my sister-in-law is always telling me about that vegan sausage, that Morningstar sausage. And I went to her house and it tasted great, but, you know, I don't really know where to get it. Okay, Let's take the next week. And for these seven days, let's make a list of breakfasts, lunches, and dinners that we actually would like. They say, okay, I'm ready. And they go home and they start fleshing out their list. They've already got a good start. But then they discover, okay, for dinner, I like to go Chinese. And there's a Chinese restaurant where I'm going to look at the menu. I'll be darned. They've got all these rice dishes and vegetable dishes and tofu dishes. And I never tried tofu, but Let's go out there Thursday. Let's try it. They got seven days. Give it a try. Or I like Latin American food. I'm going to have the bean burrito or the veggie fajitas or whatever. Or let's go sushi, not fish sushi, but I'll have the cucumber roll or the asparagus roll. Mm -hmm. So step one in changing the diet is to understand that we're going to try a plant-based diet, a vegan diet, but I need to find out over the next week or so, which foods I might like that are going to work for me um and so the person might look at recipes or look online or if they go to taco bell well they discover they got the bean burrito and if they hold the cheese so what works for their life step two after the seven days they got a huge list step two is really simple eat the list eat Mm -hmm. the foods from the list so the patient says great okay uh and for three weeks they're going to do a totally plant-based diet no animal products at all keep oils really low and at the end of that time, if they've done this right, which virtually everybody does because it's really simple, two things happen. Number one, they're, they're physical, physically they are improving. They're losing weight, their cholesterol is down, they're, if they got diabetes, their blood sugar is down. You've already had to re- reduce their insulin dose and they're thinking this is amazing. But the other thing that happens is their tastes have changed. Wow. They haven't had any chicken wings. They haven't had, <laughs> you know, they haven't had a slice of cheese. And they suddenly discover to their surprise, they don't care. Mm -hmm. They don't miss those foods. And they say, let's, I want to do this for another couple of weeks. Let's see what happens. And pretty soon it's like a smoker when the smoker hasn't had a cigarette for a month or five, five weeks, Mm -hmm. six weeks, seven weeks, they're glad they're not on that anymore. And for a person who's had a meaty diet to have broken free from that and start to see my waistline is, is coming down. My weight on the scale is coming down. My cholesterol is coming down. My energy is up. My digestion is better, is better. My my friends say I look better. Mm-hmm. People say, I just, I just want to keep going on this. That's the method that we use. The simple two-step program. I've never seen anyone unable to do it.
0: That's fantastic. So, And you can see changes in three weeks. Wow, that's amazing.
1: Oh, absolutely. And if a person has type 2 diabetes, Mm -hmm. especially if they're treated with insulin or a sulfonylurea, Mm -hmm. I always, if let's say um, they've been on this dose for a long period of time, I say, I want you to take down my telephone number. And if your blood sugar drops below something like 70 or whatever, I'll, I'll tell them, fasting blood sugar, I want you to call me. I don't care what time of day it is I want you to call me because we're going to ratchet you down on your medicine, on your medicines. And they will say to me, Doc, have you forgotten? I got diabetes. My blood sugar is never low. It's always high. I say, stay tuned. This diet is as powerful as a medicine. Wow. And usually within the first three weeks, sometimes within the first few days, people need medication adjustments. And so when we do uh, grand rounds presentations at hospitals and medical schools, we always tell them, keep in touch with your patients. This diet is extraordinarily powerful. And your goal is to cure that patient. And they say, no, that's not possible. You can't cure diabetes. You can't cure heart disease. These things, you can't cure weight problems. People just have to learn to live with them. Mm Say, just let's see how far we can go. Uh, And it is astounding what this diet can do.
0: That's that's good news. Well, let me ask you about some refractory neurological conditions. The ones that come to mind include muscular dystrophy, multiple sclerosis, and a host of autoimmune diseases. Can anything be done about those conditions?
1: Each, it's a, it's a terrific question, and I think we're really at the frontier for many of them. Mm-hmm. Um, they have different etiologies, uh, that is to say different causes, um, and I think they're each different. Um, mm-hmm. With regard to muscular dystrophy, I don't know of a role for diet, at least not one that I have been able to explore. But I hope it's out there because it would give great hope to people. Yeah. With regard to uh, multiple sclerosis, this has been a condition that uh, often starts in very young people, mm-hmm. and it's a confusing condition where sensory nerves start playing tricks on you, mm-hmm. or motor nerves, your muscles start, uh, your, your your muscle function starts playing tricks on you, where you. You wake up this morning and your legs don't operate uh, properly. Um, Multiple sclerosis is an autoimmune condition. Mm -hmm. Like I was describing earlier for thyroid disease, antibodies made by your white blood cells are now, in this case, attacking your nerves. And as they're doing that, they're causing your nerves to not function very well. And researchers years ago, for many autoimmune conditions rheumatoid arthritis, thyroid disease, Sjogren's disease, many others, including multiple sclerosis, started to say, let's see if we can get dietary antigens out of the diet, if they might be triggering this disease process. And that's when people started to use plant-based diets for that. Uh, In my experience, the results are variable. There are some people for whom this is a cure there are others where you see they improve but don't but but for anyone who has any autoimmune condition including the ones i mentioned or other things like asthma got okay, a 7-year-old child who is being driven crazy by asthma run do not walk to a diet that is free of dairy including nonfat dairy dairy proteins are an antigen that can trigger problems get away from the eggs, get away from the meat, and see if that child can't be cured of their, their asthma. Um, and that's true of any autoimmune condition. The results are, are can vary from person to person. It can depend in part on how long you've had the condition. But I encourage everybody to give it a try. You, you know, um, Venus Williams. Oh, she, yes. had, she had Sjogren's disease. Um, oh. And the, the whole reason she went vegan wasn't that she wanted. She thought it would improve her game. She mm. did it because she thought it would improve her health. And her she was tanking. Um, when she got the animal products out of her diet her game rebounded and then of course Serena says Venus if you're doing this I'm doing this too and then um, Novak Djokovic on the, on the male side of the net said I want to be vegan also and uh, I mean it's amazing to see these these athletes now uh, adopting this kind of diet
0: that that is amazing to, to, to be better athletes yeah, I, that's amazing. In fact, I think uh, the Dallas Cowboys star quarterback Dak Prescott is plant based. Uh, just amazing. Well, look, you are a prolific writer. I don't know too many people who have written over a hundred journal articles and over twenty books. Um, so I want to ask you about just two of your books. And I know we're at the edge of time, but um, "Food for Life": How the New Four Food Groups Can Save Your Life. What do you try to do? It, what did you try to do in that book?
1: That book came out quite a number of years ago when people had um, the idea that you had to have meat every day, dairy every day, and grains every day, and fruits and vegetables every day. That was the pattern. And what we realized is that two of those groups were working against you, the meat group and the dairy group. So we proposed a concept called the new four food groups, vegetables, Mm -hmm. fruits, whole grains, legumes. And we had suggested that if we build the diet from those things, whether that turns into spaghetti, which is a grain topped by, say, tomato sauce, which is a fruit, um, or whether it turns into a bean chili, beans are a legume combined with vegetables and things. Whatever it turns into, those foods can work like medicines to reverse or prevent heart disease, reduce the risk of cancer and other things. That was the idea. At the time that I wrote that, that was uh, considered either radical or revolutionary, depending on (laughs) what you want to say. But I have to say, nowadays, I think it's been accepted. And I think pretty much everybody agrees that those are healthy foods.
0: Uh huh. Well, you just reminded me. I didn't ask the protein question because people, people have said to me, you know, you're not getting enough protein. Can we get enough protein by eating plant based?
1: Yeah, and not only can you get enough protein, you're getting better protein. And let me say that. To, let me say that again. You're getting <laughs> you are getting better protein from plants than you're getting from animal products. Mm-hmm. Here's the reason I say that. the 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 1950s view that I grew up with in Fargo, North Dakota. Was that the the meat is the protein on your plate, the vegetables are the vitamins, and the potato is the calories. Well, that was a bit naive because their protein, if you could look at a protein molecule Mm. under a microscope, a powerful, powerful microscope, um, it would, it's, it's a string of beads each bead is an amino acid, and you need certain amino acids to make these proteins. And we thought, well, meat's got them all, so eat meat, and this will give you the protein you need. And that's sort of true, but what we missed was that grains have protein in them, vegetables, yes, broccoli has protein in it, and beans and the bean products have a lot of protein in them, such that a person who never eats meat or dairy or animal products at all but it's eating their grains and vegetables and beans gets all the protein they need. Mm -hmm. But there are two other issues about it. When you get your protein from meat, Mm -hmm. you're getting fat and cholesterol along with it. Your body doesn't need those. It doesn't need the saturated fat and cholesterol at all, Mm -hmm. which is why meat eaters die earlier. They have more problems with their weight. They have a lot more cardiovascular disease and cancer. When you get your protein from plant products, there's no cholesterol out there at all. But what they have instead is, is fiber and vitamins. The other thing, and this is really brand new, researchers have found that although meat was a popularly recommended source of protein because it has a high quantity of the essential amino acids, the ones your body can't make, it turns out it probably has too much. Mm-hmm. We, uh, we're still learning about this, but it looks like there's no nutritional advantage to getting your protein from from animals at all, that the essential amino acids, it looks like people may be getting too much of them, and it might be hurting their health. Plant products have an adequate amount, but not the excess. Mm -hmm. It's just like iron. In the 1950s, people thought you need iron for healthy blood, and that's true. So the more, the better, eat liver, um, have meat. And what we discovered is it's too much iron. It causes heart disease, it probably ha- harms the brain. So you need a little bit, not too much. Plants, a very plant-based diet, gives you the protein you need, mm-hmm. a little bit extra, but not that massive extra. And it, what it gives you is clean. Yeah. It doesn't have the cholesterol in it.
0: Yeah, and I've also heard you recommend that if a person switches to plant-based, you think that B12 is something that they need to supplement with. Is that about right?
1: Yep. I think everybody, well, I think everyone should supplement with B12, but on a vegan diet, it's essential.
0: Okay. Now, what about seafood? I mean, I've long thought that seafood was a good meat, that fish is really not like beef or pork. What do you think?
1: It's a whole lot more like beef or pork than it is like broccoli. Is that <laughs> <way laughs> true? Oh, absolutely. absolutely. Because yes. fish, yeah, it's a the, 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 uh, fish muscle Mm -hmm. The fish people eat is there to move a tail and on a chicken, it's there to move their wings, but it's this, it's muscle. it doesn't have any fiber. It doesn't have any complex carbohydrates. It doesn't have any uh, vitamin C in it at all. It does have fat and cholesterol in it. In fact, Mm -hmm. if you've got Chinook salmon, it's about 50% fat. Um, It is the saturated fat content is about the same as beef. The cholesterol content is almost identical. Um, It it does have some good fat in it. That's true. Mm -hmm. It's got some omega-3. Um, and it's got more omega three than say beef has, uh-huh. but it's but most of the fat in salmon and every other fish is not omega three. Okay. So we don't recommend fish at all. And plus, fish fish is is different from beef and pork, and all other animal products in one unusual respect. Fish are carnivores. Mm-hmm. People eat beef. The cow is a vegan. Um, you know, but fish. The little fish eats the mercury on the ocean floor. Mm-hmm. The slightly bigger fish eats the little fish, and they concentrate that mercury. The bigger fish eats that fish, and by the time you get up to a tuna, right. that, that animal has concentrated the pollutants that were in the smaller fish, which is why the CDC will always say, well, women shouldn't eat this fish, and they shouldn't eat that fish, and they shouldn't eat the other fish, because it's the dirtiest food that we consume by far.
0: Whoa. Well, you've convinced me. I didn't think about that. In that way before in another book that caught my attention your body in balance what do you do in that book when i discovered
1: that we could control hormones mm-hmm. i realized that hormones control everything in our body and most people have no idea how foods could affect their hormones how they could control them so i wanted to write a book about that mm-hmm. so insulin is one hormone and we already talked about how you can get your insulin working again if a person has diabetes their insulin is not doing the job And so what we do is we use a low-fat vegan diet to allow their insulin to attach to their cells, a cell that no longer has all that fat in it. And now it can work again. Uh, Estrogen, that's a group of hormones that we think of as female sex hormones. um, And those can misbehave in a couple of ways, causing menstrual cramps or endometriosis in young women or the the fluctuations in estrogen later in life can lead to really bad menopausal symptoms Hmm. and we started to discover that we could knock out menopausal symptoms i'm talking about hot flashes we can Uh, knock up we can knock out nine out of ten hot flashes if a woman changes her diet vegan no animal fat i mean vegan very low fat and have a half a cup of soybeans every day it sounds too simple but if a woman is being driven crazy by hot flashes uh give this a try Uh, it's it's amazing to see what you can do. So that book talks about these hormones, talks about testosterone, thyroid hormone, all these things where we sometimes get a little off track and how we can get the hormones working the way they are supposed to.
0: Well, that's amazing. Well, there you have it, folks. This is amazing. Dr. Barnard, it was really an honor sitting with you today. Thank you so much for being on the show.
1: Well, thank you for all the wonderful work that you're doing. It's wonderful to be able to speak with you today.
0: Thank you. You've been listening to the Possibility Action Network podcast. Our guest today has been Dr. Neil Barnard. I'm your host, Stephen Middleton. Until next time, good day.